Hello and welcome to another edition of the Sitcom Club. Joining myself, Mooncat, is your old pal Ocho. Hello. Okay, so this week we are talking about another Esmond and Larby show. And it was one which was suggested to us on Twitter. Because we were talking a few weeks ago about the good life and how that played a little bit of a role in the election campaign. That then generated a conversation about Esmond and Larby. And then suddenly, before we know, we're talking about Hope It Rains. So Ocho, do you want to give us a quick little precy of Hope It Rains, what it is, who's in it? Tom Bell is Harry Nash, an antisocial waxwork museum owner. And he's quite happy with his life sitting in his wax museum, not taking in much money and being unpleasant to people with occasionally little bits of conscience thrown at him by Dennis Portland, the photographer who works next door. And his life is disrupted when he finds out that an old friend is dying. Somehow it has fallen to him to look after his goddaughter, Jess Elliott, played by Holly Aird. So there's a clash of personalities. She's 18, she's rebellious, and Harry is anti-everything. Well, it's the basic setup, but there's odd little bits where it swims against its own tide. Now, I watched some of this as it went out in whatever year it was, 1991? You ever seen this before, Mooncat? I had not seen it before, no. I really enjoyed this. I wasn't sure what to expect at first, because some of the Twitter conversation had been suggesting that it was rather downbeat and grim and what have you. We'll talk about each episode in turn and there are some bits and pieces which are surprising there are some bits and pieces which you don't normally get in a traditional sitcom but by and large yeah i found it very engaging i mean let's face it compared to some of the stuff we've been looking at this season (laughs) it was nice to actually watch a good sitcom for once (laughs) but no i was engaged with the characters and the setup i think there was maybe a little bit of the spats effect there with regard to the the area itself and the location i'm not quite sure why this has sort of disappeared well okay it's probably disappeared off the face of the earth because it's an itv sitcom and most itv sitcoms unfortunately tend to do that but it's certainly up there with esmond and larby's best work i really enjoyed this i broadly agree i thought it ran out of steam actually by the end of the second series it's just going to be a hard one to describe Because every time we pin down a characteristic, we'll get strange little things that run counter to that characteristic. God, isn't Tom Bell frightening, though? He is, yes. he's. uh, The thing thing is, is that he is one of the angriest characters in sitcom. He doesn't do many outbursts, but there seems to be this permanent rage in everything he says and does. And a few of the points where he does lose his temper... It's not like any other acting I've seen in sitcom. It's a more popular expression nowadays than I suspected it was in 1991, passive-aggressive. No, no, he's aggressive. Yes, he is, but even when... Passive-aggressive would be that kind of, oh, don't mind me, I'll just... Dennis is passive-aggressive. Yeah, the thing is, is that Dennis... At first, you might get the feeling that Dennis is sort of there to leaven out the confrontation... And Dennis is there to be nice. He's the nice one. But actually, he's quite sanctimonious at times. Yes, that's true. And also, he's full of a little bit of angst. So he's quite often sort of wound up inside. He's not too happy with where he is himself. So it is nice that, like you say, 
Is this an Esmond and Larvae specific trait, having really well-rounded three-dimensional characters where you can't easily predict from week to week what anybody's going to do or say? Remember we said the other week on the politics discussion about Margot. You never really know where you are with Margot. Sometimes Margot is playing the right heel. Sometimes she's the voice of common sense. Sometimes she is someone who you don't really want to agree with, but you find yourself gravitating towards her. I'd say also the same with Paul in Ever Decreasing Circles, where he could have been a two-dimensional character. He's just the guy who comes in and smiles and the world's all right with him and he's always a counter to Martin, but he's got that depth, he's got that aspect. We find out more about those characters than we ever find out about Harry. There are things about Harry that should be able to fit into a normal sitcom mould. Because, okay, fine, he's the antisocial one, he's the grumpy one, but then we find out about his sex life, and that seems to run counter to it. We've, his taste in music... It's not surprising necessarily to find out that he's so into classical music, but then, of course, his aggression is a quite northern-sounding working-class belligerence mixed with a certain high-mindedness that we don't have a great deal of backstory for Harry. And when not that loading a character with backstory is a good thing, but it's, it's actually quite hard to work out. There's one strange reaction... When he's having dinner with Jason, he says something about you have your dad's eyes. I guess since that maybe there was some big bond between Harry and Jason's dad, and as we find him now, he's friendless. That he maybe he had a really great friendship, he's lost that friendship, and now he has to have this reminder of the people who aren't around every day. He's got to look at Jason, but it's all quite sketched in. That I'm normally. I'm quite good at making up baroque little explanations for characters' motivations, but there's not a great deal to get onto with this. Well, he does address this issue a couple of times about why he is the way that he is. I mean, he says specifically to Dennis at one point, I'm not gregarious. He says to Jace later on that some people are meant to be sociable. He never had the tools for that. And so he ended up retreating into his own little world. There doesn't seem to be any one specific instance or anything like that. There's not any kind of trigger that's made him that way. I sort of like the fact that he's a little bit of an enigma. We've spoken before about sometimes like modern sitcoms and modern drama and so on. Some characters need to have this huge sort of backstory, which is explained probably in terms of maybe a flashback or just a long sort of monologue about why they are the way they are. And it's... It's nice to leave a little element of intrigue. It just feels very loose, loosely written. Like they were just writing it as as it occurred to them. And then maybe even deliberately flipped back on an idea. Right, he's lonely, he's antisocial. There is, I think in episode one, they mention other women have been there, but it's like, well, no, hang on a minute. Let's make him a bit of a Lothario, but also quite a selfish one. (laughs) Well, is that a case of the character bending to fit the story for that week? But it doesn't feel like one of those cases where, right, we've got a plot, let's twist the character out of shape. It Because it's just so free-flowing, it would be interesting to know how much of a concrete idea. Martin, in ever-decreasing circles, there are little seeds planted that blossom later. There's mention of the playground, organising the games. Martin... 
alludes to it in a way that doesn't quite make sense, and then it's later spelled out. He he does something about we always had such fun when I organised the games, and it's five episodes later that we get the whole thing about yes, he used to organise his little gang at school, and then he lost the gang, which gives you a sense that they may not have had a writer's bible written down, but they seem to have had a clear idea of who Martin was and why he was like he was and what he was like when he was different. The suggestion is that he was different. With this, it feels more like improvised. Let's just do a broad heading, grumpy waxwork honour, and then let's just think of plot ideas and just see where they take them. But it's just a very good flowing line. It's not odd man out. (laughs) (laughs) We're going into the common market. I'm learning French. I hate the French. Every new piece of information, realistically... It doesn't really work against anything we, we've already been told. It might work against things that we have assumed. Let's have a look at a couple of these episodes. So first of all, we've got the situation being established in episode one, and that's where the show gets its title from, because Harry gets his passing trade when it rains, whereas Dennis, of course, fares it when it's sunny, because then he can go out and try and sell people an idea of getting the photograph taken. So that, in a way, that's a nice little element running throughout where Harry's business is running counter to pretty much everybody else in the town. And that comes to the fore later on when Dennis tries to have a whip round to help out Harry and just nobody wants to know. It's a little bit frustrating that episode when they talk about the whip round and everybody gives very good reasons for why nobody would want a whip round for Harry. I don't think he realised how disliked he was. But it's towards the end of series one, and there's enough of a gap in story time between the end of series one and the beginning of series two that he seems to have reset. We never really get him exploring the feelings of realising what it's like to be genuinely disliked. But also, that's another reason why I warm to this show so much, because I suspect, I think he actually says at one point to Dennis, you've been watching too many Disney films. I can imagine this kind of storyline playing out in... An American sitcom, something very saccharine, maybe like a Christmas special or something like that, where Harry finds out just how disliked he is by the the town and then goes about changing his ways <laughs> to then <laughs> try and win people's friendship. And of course, the fact of the matter is that it's not going to work out like that. Harry does little things to surprise us, as indeed Jason Dennis do throughout. But he's a real person, he's a real character, so he's not just going to suddenly change overnight and discover to his horror that he's disliked, therefore he suddenly becomes gregarious and takes on the persona of Danny Kay. I mean, it makes sense that he doesn't realise how disliked he is because he never goes anywhere. Okay, he goes to the Conservative Club to play chess and occasionally goes to the cafe, but he's not somebody who's, he says himself, he's not a joiner. He's the opposite of Martin. If there's a committee going, then Harry is definitely not going to be on it, not going to be anywhere near it. So why would he really know how people feel about him? Because most of the time he's sat in his chair reading a book and he just doesn't mix with the townsfolk. So it makes sense that he's a little bit upset to find out that when the cap was passed around, there was nothing in it. But at the same time, that wouldn't necessarily trigger a complete U-turn in his personality, and it doesn't. Actually, the chess club's an interesting bit where... They play with the conventions. Jess has got flu. Harry is looking after her. And then he just, he has to go somewhere. 
and he won't tell Jace where it is. Ordinary sitcom logic says, oh, this is going to be quite significant. This is going to, He's going to somebody's grave or he's going to visit a lady friend or a third suggestion that doesn't quite occur to me because I'm not a sitcom writer. But no, he's just going to chess club. He's just blowing her off to continue his little antisocial social life. That's a really good way of putting it, actually. Antisocial social life. Because when he comes back from the chess club later on, he says to Jace how much he'd enjoyed it because he got one over on his opponent. It wasn't. It was nothing about the camaraderie. It was nothing at all about the the atmosphere or playing the game for its own sake or because it, you know, sort of keeps his mind active. He just, you know, he was really, really pleased that he'd won the match. And of course, there's the odd inversion of will they want the attention. The will they want they is will they just form any kind of a normal, natural, friendly bond? It would be unlikely anybody was going to, in this situation, minor will they want their scene because she's 18 and he's somewhere in his 50s. But again, the normal logic of sitcom says two unattached people of opposite sex are forced to live together. That's going to become a question. But he loses out by that assumption. He can't go to the conservative club anymore because somebody saw him taking a young girl out to dinner. What a weird, peevish little community they live in. Well, he explains our logic very well. They knew that she was living with him. That was accepted, but taking her out in public was seen as flaunting it. And therefore, he sort of breached some unspoken rule. That's brilliant. That's brilliant saying to the audience, right, there is no will they want the attention in the traditional sense. That does not stop these characters being injured by will they want the attention in their own world. Then he's fancy his chase though, doesn't he? He does a poor... Uh, I've got to say a word in defence of Dennis. Poor Dennis. Oh, I mean... Okay, yes, I know that he's sanctimonious and he's always getting wound up and what have you and giving little sermons, but... Oh, poor Dennis. I mean, really. I mean, yeah, there was one point at which Jace says, I really do love you, Dennis. And he's like, oh? And, yeah, for a moment, he's just got this idea in his mind that something might happen here. And then she says, yeah, it's like having a big brother. And he just looks so forlorn and disappointed. And, and I'm not making a party political comment here, but it was lovely the fact that they'd chosen the Liberal Club for Dennis to go to rather than Harry going to the Conservative Club. And I'm sure that Jace would probably be sort of socialist in her outlook because she immediately sort of identifies the fact that Harry said, oh, you go to the Conservative Club, of course, I might, I might have guessed that you'd be a Tory voter. Well, no, she'll have those kind of weird, young, naive politics that want socialism and rebellion against society at the same time. Yes. As somebody actually once said to me, fellow student at the time, suddenly burst into the room where I was and said, I've decided I'm an anarchist socialist, he said. And I said, what does that mean? And <laughs> he paused for a second and he said, it made sense when I read the blog this morning. <laughs> But, yeah, no, when Dennis is explaining about, oh, we don't have any kind of rota for the pool table, we we just see how things develop. It's very airy-fairy and what have you, and of course, Harry hasn't got any time for this. It's ridiculous. Dennis is very easily manipulated by Chase. I suspect that Dennis is very easily manipulated by everyone. You just want to give him a shake, really. I mean, putting himself in a position where he goes to see his ex-wife He's got no time for him, and 
allowing himself to be put in a position where she critiques him and says, oh, you're no hope, you're not going nowhere, you're still stuck in the same damn place that you were before, and so on. In a way, he's brought it all on himself. Well, here's another sign that this is going to be an interesting show to talk about. I'm not quite sure if we're going to get to the end of this without going off topic. We can't just kind of go through episode by episode. To make sense of something that somebody does in another episode, we have to look at something else. So you like... You know, in a, like a conspiracy drama when somebody has a big thing on the wall with pins and string going between different pictures? It's yes. like that. Right, so there's no will they want the attention. Dennis does kind of fancy Jace, but Dennis is not... I can't think of the right word to use. He's he's not a nasty man. If use the word predator, it comes out far more extreme than I mean it to be. So Harry, right, you know, will they want the attention is, is right out and he's infuriated at losing out on his chess club because of the unpleasant assumptions. However, there is an episode about Harry using women for sex. <laughs> is that over the top for me to say that that's essentially what Harry does? Okay, no, it's not over the top. I'm sort of in two minds about that one, because on one hand, he is lying his way or attempting to lie his way into bed with the dancer, one of the dancers who's appearing at a local show, and he explains... This is the thing. This is the traditional thing, right? Every year is the summer show. Somebody puts on a big variety spectacular, and there are always dancers about, and both Harry and Dennis go along and look at what's available. <laughs> This is why we can't have a tumbler. <laughs> Dennis, of course, gets smitten and I guess gets all champagne and roses about it. And Harry just looks for the hungriest one he can find and I'll feed you for the season. The thing is, though, that even though he is fibbing... Wait, is he fibbing? No, he's, is he fibbing? Does, does he really think that these girls think they're entering into some wonderful... No, 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 he's fibbing and not fibbing at the same time. So he's fibbing when he says, oh, I had no idea that you lived in all these awful digs and that you were just making do on baked beans and hamburgers. Oh, I had no idea it was like that. When he's just previously said to Jace at the outset that that's exactly what it is. He knows exactly what the circumstances are. But then he says to the dancer, look, how about you and I spending the summer together? So then he's really been open and honest and saying, he's not he's not telling her anything untrue there. It's not like he's saying, oh, I've fallen for you or anything like that. He's actually just sort of laying out and saying, look, okay, here's the deal. Cards on the table. That's actually the, the expression he uses. So from that point of view... I can tell you, you didn't write this. Ah, uh, uh, no, hang on. I was being... I didn't say it this time. Um, <laughs> you thought it. Well, I mean, it would have been worse if he'd actually done it. Wouldn't it have been that entirely that surprising? <laughs> yes, it would. <laughs> yeah, yes, yes, it would. Harry is many things, but he's not kinky. He's, he's not like that. No. Or is he? Well, that, that's a question. Do we ever actually see Harry's bedroom? We never see Harry's bedroom, do we? No, no, that's true. I don't think they could show it before the watershed. <laughs> well, in that case, you could have all manner of contraptions. No, t Tom Bell is dark. He's the darkest actor ever to have a camera pointed at him. Even the light parts of his face are only light because the light has collapsed in on itself and gone backwards and been light through its own darkness. Now, I thoroughly admit to being 
something of a cultural ignoramus. However, I am rather surprised that I had no knowledge of Tom Bell in any way whatsoever before I watched this. So, tell me, where's he been? Is he mainly a film actor? Is he a theatre actor? Does he mainly do drama? What's the deal? I haven't seen him in a great deal. He's one of those guys who just turns up in things. Uh, Looking now, he is actually in a number of series. But the main things I remember him from, he's in an armchair theatre. One of the early ones that I think it's, it's one that has a message at the beginning saying this is not suitable for children or the easily offended. Uh, and in that, he plays somebody who's kind of dominated by his mother and can't form a proper sexual relationship and is weirdly abusive to a middle-aged hooker. And I remember him playing an assassin in an episode of The Protectors. He might have a type, but its he's not one of those faces where, oh, well, I've seen him in so many different things. Do you know who he reminded me of a little bit? Michael Bates. I can't see it. Really? I mean, actually, he reminds me of him as far as his appearances are concerned as well. So no, I'm just, I'm just looking. Tom Bell never played Heathcliff, and that's just wrong. <laughs> you know which Heathcliff I mean. No, I genuinely did I not heard think the you meant the cat. No, I was yes, not suggesting... I wasn't. No, I was not suggesting that he played the cat. He just seems born for it, that or Mr. Rock. You know, one of those abusive Bronte boyfriends. Abusive Bronte boyfriends? Were they a sort of... They've sacked their bassist, you know. They were, the, they were on the charts of run about... Was it 81 or thereabouts when they had their... Well, that's what Cosmic Punctuation eventually changed their name to. <laughs> That was a particular one that was recommended, the music one. I don't know, it's it's going to be difficult to go through these episode by episode because every time we'll hit a little characterization bump, we'll then have to go scurrying off to a point where they revealed more or acted contrary to that impulse. Okay, can we talk about something that totally threw me, ran completely against my expectation? Episode 3, Series 1, where Jace is looking to earn money and eventually she convinces Dennis that she would be suitable for his pin-up calendar. And she steals the dress off Marilyn Monroe and says, okay, how about this? And eventually Dennis agrees, okay, and he says, look, you do know what this calendar is all about, don't you? And she's not naive about it, but at the same time, she's uneasy. And Harry is sort of suggesting that she would be hoping that he'd say no and that she could then have an argument with him, but that would sort of get her off the hook. But when he doesn't, eventually she turns up at the studio, and then she says, I'm not sure I can go through with this. Now, the final scene in that episode is Dennis turning up and saying to Harry, oh no, she did it, and uh, yeah, very photogenic she was, and the proofs are in this envelope here, make sure you give that to her. And before Harry can even have a peek inside the envelope, Jace turns up and says, oh, that's the envelope, that's the proofs, isn't it? And I was just waiting for the reveal. I was waiting for the point at which it turns out that she didn't actually go through with it. And I was expecting, like, just, you know, newspaper clippings or something like that in the envelope or something. And it's all just some big funny prank that Dennis and Jace have played on Harry. But there isn't. There isn't any funny prank. There's no twist. And that that in itself is a real sort of eye-opener. That was, like, that was the last thing I was expecting. I have this vision in my head of Esmond and Larby sitting down to write another show and just saying, right, so what would we normally do? 
We'd normally do this. Okay, scratch that out. Let's do something else. I read a quote recently from Alan Corrin about if it was meant to be the secret of comedy or just good advice for being funny, which is don't say the first thing that comes into your head because everybody's thinking that. Don't say the second thing that comes into your head because all the clever people in the audience have already thought of that. Say the third thing. And this seems to be Esmond and Larby thinking, what are the fourth and fifth things <laughs> in this list? And I can't think of another instance like this where... <laughs> okay, I went crazy at one point watching this. I went genuinely nuts. Nuts! <laughs> <laughs> because I was thinking, right, so we've got different balances of niceness and goodness... Harry is not nice, he is sometimes good. Dennis is nice, but he's not always good. The archetype of Jace, I mean, the snotty teenager. Breaking kayfabe, we're recording this podcast before we do the mailbag, but I think during the mailbag we'll have mentioned no frills. Oh God, no frills! <laughs> With the most horrific example of snotty teenagerdom I've seen in sitcom. And just those few seconds have actually put me off ever watching any of the rest of No Frills. But anyway, Jace is a snotty teenager, but then is often overtaken by a girlish eagerness to please. I'm thinking insofar as you could say there is a theme behind Hope It Rains, it's everybody's the hero of their own story. And I think that's something that is lost a lot now in modern culture these days okay right everybody's excited about star wars coming back and you know the whole thing about joseph campbell yes um two things one i'm not and two no right uh joseph campbell wrote a book called the hero with a thousand faces i think is that maybe, the same as a man in the iron million mask? or maybe he had a hundred anyway he had lots of faces and it wasn't about lon cheney and it's just this thing about you take all the great mythological stories and you can actually start boiling down the steps. It's the opposite here of what Esmond and Larby are doing. In all the great heroic mythologies, the hero gets the call to adventure, he denies it, but then he goes on the adventure anyway. At some point he has to atone with his father and he has to return home, but he has to return home to realise that he can't go home again because his adventures have changed him. And there were genuinely... And they might still be out there. There were genuinely people who got really hung up on this. George Lucas has claimed that this was a big influence behind Star Wars. Some people think he's just kind of retrospectively exaggerated the influence of Joseph Campbell on Star Wars. But there were people who became disciples of this mode of thought. I'm not saying it's invalid as a bit of cultural context examination. But there were people who then got into Hollywood studios and said, you know, if you don't follow these Campbell steps, you don't have a hero. And so again and again, we are seeing narratives about a heroic individual who is different from the rest, who leads the good guys to victory because he is special and he has daddy issues. And the flip side of that is, <laughs> hope it rains. <laughs> Everybody in this is the hero of their own story. And they're, sometimes Harry has a point in what he's saying. Sometimes he is pointing out Jace's airy-fairy selfishness. Young people, they're open to new experiences, but frequently they don't really think about who's going to pay for them. But Harry's often wrong. 
sometimes he is just unpleasant for the sake of it. Some of the ways he treats the people who come into his waxwork museum. Once he's got their money, he doesn't really care if they have a good show. Except when he does at one point. That's, an, you know, again, later on, he suddenly takes a little bit of pride in his museum. Dennis, he's a good guy. He's a nice guy. He wants to please everybody. But then again, he actually wants to get somebody into a corner and wag his finger about how he wants to please everybody and they're not as nice as he is. Nobody's the good guy in this story. And unlike Map and Lucia, it's another situation comedy with no good guys. But it's a situation comedy with all morally grey people. That sounds weird. Little peevish, selfish... Social climbers, a whole bunch of rats guarding the cheese. Nobody's particularly the bad guy in this either. I can understand sometimes Harry's thinking, yeah, sometimes you do want to be left alone. And you want to be antisocial. There are people who say, oh, come on. Come on, have fun in the prescribed way. Do we think that Jace would actually have come back from her sojourn off to the wilds of Rotterdam and so on. I mean, obviously she has to, because otherwise there's no scene. Well, it's a weird little subterfuge she uses to get back. She claims to have lost her passport. She claims to need more help than she really does. Now, is that because she wants to come back, but she can't admit that she wants to come back? Or is it that she just doesn't want to admit that she spent all the money and needs help but has to make it look more like a crisis than oh yeah if, if things just turn a little bit wrong I'm going to come running to Harry like most questions in Hope and Rames that I don't think this is ever answered I mean Jess has a strange relationship with the waxwork business as well sometimes it appears she really wants it to be a success and that's another thing there's this one where she decides she'll pretend to be a waxwork and then surprise people this is not mined for comedy potential. We're told about silly things that happen that cause her to quit, but we're not, we don't see them. They're not staged as gags. We're told that it was just humiliating and irritating for her. And it's happened. It's in the past. We don't get to see it. Every time I think I know what the setup's going to be, the setup doesn't happen. There's never anything farcical. There's never anything that feels like it's just been crowbarred in. There's plenty of scope for that kind of thing. I mean, you've got the occasional silly business where, for example, the biker who Jace is trying to get shot of, he brings his bike into Dennis's photography studio. And there's sort of the scope there for sort of slapstick and pratfalls and so on, but it just, just doesn't go down that road. It's just not what it's about. And so in a way, it's nice because it doesn't go for easy options. It doesn't go for the most obvious road. Okay, the biker guy seemed to me to be not the strongest bit of characterization. No, he was a bit sort of two-dimensional. He reminded um, me of Crusher from Last of the Summer Wine. Yes, I can see that, actually, because I was trying to sort of place who he reminded me of, and I couldn't really place him on top. Yes, yes, I know what you mean. Actually, though, here's a strange thought, because we're going to say he's just made to look ridiculous. There's a thing that I keep seeing in... British comedies of a certain vintage, threatening characters are made to look stupid or, ah, oh, they're not threatening at all. Now, that seemed jarring when I was a kid because bikers were frightening because they were grown-ups. 
But once you get into middle age, a 22-year-old trying to be threatening when you're middle-aged? Like, this is a kid. This is a kid dressing up. Do you want to talk about the pop music episode? <laughs> <laughs> I don't understand what Harry's genuine dislike and, if I may say so, vitriol towards James Last is all about. What's James Last ever done to anybody? Well, Harry just likes the classics. So even easy listening like James Last to him is an assault. Is it lacks any development of harmony, any complexity that you would normally find in Western art music, as some people call it. I think I know the answer to this already, but what would Harry's view be of the Boston Pops Orchestra? Sellouts. I'll give him this, actually. Harry is not prone... Because I was about to say there, just for a laugh. I'm he surprised that Harry was... likes Tchaikovsky. I thought Tchaikovsky would be far too perfumed for him. <laughs> Something German and introspective. I was about to say there, just for giggles, that Harry would think that the Boston Pops Orchestra was the beginning of the end of civilization. But actually, he's not like that, is he? He's not somebody who's prone to ridiculous outbursts. He's quite measured, isn't he, really, in, in all of his criticism. And even there's, there's anger in everything he does. Even when he dislikes something intensely, he doesn't scream and shout and wave his arms around or anything like that. He just sort of plainly says what he thinks. And yes, it's, it's, there are, it's there menacing There are a couple of bits tone. where he loses his temper, though, and it's just really odd. There's a rage there that you don't normally see in anything, really. It's a special Tom Bell anger where it really looks like somebody's going to end up dead. Now, that would have surprised me had that happened. I mean, and I, I don't mean he's going to kill somebody. I just mean the sheer waves of black fury emanate from him just kill things. <laughs> no, I never thought that that was likely to happen. I never expected any characters actually drop dead at any point in the episode. So there are a few things that are a little bit... I mean, cosmic punctuation. The the band that Jace plays tambourine with, she's the, the Davy Jones of cosmic punctuation. I thought they were actually quite good. It's the name. The name sounds like a sort of prog rock jazz fusion band. Somebody who wants to be the Mahavishnu Orchestra. What would be an early 90s band name. It would be something four letters and monosyllabic. Because I'm just thinking you had Blur, Pulp, Ride. Muse? Is that one? Muse should be called Cosmic Punctuation. <laughs> but yes, that but as, as an archetype of an early 90s band name, yes. What else was there? There was Curve. Corner. Squish. Flump. Pasta. Snood. Snood! Snood would be a good early 90s Ben's name, all lowercase, naturally. Gaffer. <laughs> Gaffer's a real band name. Is it? Yeah, Gaffer is the band that did the theme tune to the Gaffer. Have a look on 45cat.com. The Gaffer by Gaffer. <laughs> I rock of the jib, Toby. Celsius. Oh, Celsius, yes. I can't remember what cosmic punctuation sound like, though. It seemed to be very generic. Yes, it was quite generic, but they weren't. The Thames weren't Valley really Shoe Gazers. What year is this? Nineteen ninety-one. Lush. That was another one. When we do hear just listening to recorded music, it's it's sort of library metal, and she listens with a mono earbud. 
yes, what the hell was that all about? <laughs> that, that, that was a surprise. How difficult would it be to get a mono earbud these days? Very easy to get a mono earbud. Do you know why I know that? I'm using one right now. No. It makes it easier when I edit these things. I don't have my headphone bleed. Ah, see, right. Whereas I'm using a, a cheap piece of pish. Yes, and any time I talk over the top of you, people might be able to hear my voice echoing because of the, the dreadful, dreadful <laughs> headphone bleed. I really like the fact that they didn't fall into the trap. We were talking the other week about, say, things like continuity editors and Honey for Tea, for example. It would have been so easy to have Jace have, I mean, I don't know what, nowadays it would be, what's one of those stupid ones with a B on them? Those headphones. What are they? Oh, Beats by That's Dre. Them. Right. Okay. So if that was nowadays, she'd have those. But that would run contrary to the fact that she's broke. And But she would have those little personal stereo ones with the horrible foam things that didn't actually make them that comfortable to wear. This tiny, tiny little bit of cushion between you and the metal. Of the, you know, those over-the-ear ones. She wouldn't have anything fancy, but she'd have the basic personal stereo. She'd have a personal stereo as well. She could, she's got it plugged into a radio that looks like it's either from the 70s or the 2000s. It's it's either a three-band 70s radio or it's a 2000s digital radio. Of course, it's 1991. We know what the answer is. But you ever noticed that digital radios, when they came out, they were all made to look very comforting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And like I, had, I had one. Yeah, I had one of those. Yeah. Yes, I had one of those. And actually... No, I was just, just going to go into a rant about how awful DAB reception is around here, but no, that's completely off topic. Here's the thing. I just want to throw this in. This is completely off topic. It's nothing to do with Hope It Rains. But annoying traits in sitcoms. Whenever a character says, let's have some music, and they just go straight over to the radio and turn it on, and the station that's already set to is playing just the right kind of music for whatever the circumstances are. Honestly, if you were to try and do that now, then the number of stations you'd have to go through, and if it was a modern radio, it would do that little like piece of silence between finding each station, and you'd be wandering the way through like Radio Free and Radio Berkshire and Talk Sport, and if it was a commercial station, it would have an advert on it or something like that. And eventually, you just give up and say, "Oh bollocks to this, put Spotify on." But no, <laughs> in, in 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 sitcoms, it's like let's have some music and whatever it is that they're looking for that's suitable. If it's like Latin rhythms, if it's like ballroom dancing, if it's big band, anything. It's just like, turn it on and there it is! Well, hey, this is like some sort of mind control radio. You just decide what you want and then just press a button and it emanates. Okay, you say, what does Harry have against James Last? Why does Dennis like James Last so much? Does anybody like James Last that much? Even James Last's agent. You said yourself that Dennis is passive-aggressive. And he's wound up and he's always sort of waiting to sort of boil over in his strange sort of way. He says himself that James Last gives him a sort of feeling of serenity. So that sort of makes sense. I would have that thought... sort of fits in with his character. I don't know. I just, I just thought it would make his, his absolute rapture on the train coming home would make more sense with Shirley Bassey or some torch singer. Some big, show-busy type. So the attempt to engage with youth culture doesn't come quite off, but I'm going to say that, I don't know, it's, I think James Last actually might be a slight mistake as well. It's a pity that he didn't make a, an appearance. 
So you don't agree with me that it kind of runs out of steam towards the end of the second series? A little bit, yes. I think that there are some episodes where it's like these are the sort of fiddler episodes within the six or seven parts. It is nice the way that the last episode sort of ends. The last episode, even though it's not... I forget everyone's classifications, to be honest. It's not a definitive ending. It is an, an acknowledged ending. You can have another series after it, but it works as a little sort of wink to the camera saying, we know this is the last one. And because of all those... Actually, no, it's, it's weird. I would say that plot-wise, it's not so much it runs out of steam there. It's just I really want to see the characters start to change a little bit more. I mean, we have the big revelation about Harry and Sybil at the cafe and why Sybil treats Jess so horribly. Do we have a slight retcon situation there? Because right at the outset of Series 2, there is a conversation between Harry and Sybil, where Sybil's saying about how, oh, it's funny how Jace has been away for so long and so on, and Harry's just saying, no, you've just been bloody nosy. And there's no suggestion there of there being any kind of history between the two of them. That fits in with my idea that it just seems to be written very loosely. Let's just take the idea and watch it fly around. What's that horrible thought when you said there about Harry liking Wagner? Now I've just got this idea that there's a room, <laughs> there's a room like in Father Ted. <laughs> they, they never go into it, and it just suddenly it's like you can see the, like, the torch burning in the background, and <laughs> all the flags and what have you. Just oh god, that's it, isn't it? That's his secret. Oh, that's what we need for his bedroom. We haven't really talked much about Jace. This is true. This is true. I mean. It's nice also that she's not, again, she's not a three-dimensional character. She's not somebody who simply comes in and is the out-of-place teenager and she's just constantly surly. In other words, she's not like no frills. Jace is quite often rude, but usually when she's being rude, she knows that she's being rude. So she's not one of these people who has no social graces. We were talking a little while ago about characters saying the wrong thing, putting their foot in it and so on, about how Mark and Peepshow describes Dobby as a sayer. She's just, you know, for whatever reason, she just can't keep the bloody word to herself. There's an element of that in Jace, but it's more sort of mischievous. I think that... Well, she wrecks Harry's romantic chances. She doesn't, she doesn't, because in actual fact, even though she's having fun with it, she's still actually doing what he's asked. She's going to do it in her own way. She's going to do it in a sort of tongue-in-cheek sort of manner. But at the same time, it's not like she suddenly blows the gaff. She didn't just spill the beans and, and, and do it intentionally. It's just curious how she finds that funny. She finds Harry being banned from the Conservative Club funny, which you'd think, given the reason, she'd be more outraged about the reason... There's no situation of her trying to get Harry reinstated at the Conservative Club, if only to clear her own good name. I feel like we shouldn't have done this podcast. Really? I think we should have released a diagram. This is where the story would conventionally lead. This is where it actually does lead. Are you suggesting that the future of the podcast is in line drawings, akin to the Etch-A-Sketch? Not line drawings, because I think you need shading as well. <laughs> I just see lots of arrows going off in different directions. Jace is very persuasive. And 
she's able to use that power for good and for evil. No, she's able to get what she wants, and sometimes that'll be for her own ends, and sometimes that will be maybe to help Harry out, for example. We need to come back to music, because that scene, that, that was when I watched The Time, and that scene stuck in my mind when she's crying at the Tchaikovsky. And again, Harry thinks he's got through to her. It's the power of the music, but it's actually just the, simply the associations with her being an orphan. And the associations that... Pe- and then Harry's genuinely upset. He's chosen the wrong piece. He should have realised that that was absolutely the wrong concert to take her to. Again, Harry's... We see a slightly nice side of Harry. Nobody wins in that episode. Harry doesn't like James Last. He doesn't like cosmic punctuation. And Jace is not necessarily persuaded of the power of classical music on its own terms. The only person who's coming out of it really plays is Dennis. Even then, surely it must be a little bit of regret. He doesn't... What would that be like if he'd won Harry over to the last side? (laughs) Thing is, okay, now this is getting massively off topic, but in a way it sort of isn't. Dennis is really eager to take Harry to a James Last concert. Why? Why is he so eager to get Harry interested in what he's interested in? Actually, you know what? I think maybe you could argue that is one situation where the character just bends to the theme of the plot. You know what it's like sometimes when, for whatever reason, if... It could be anything at all. It could be a film. It could be a TV series. No matter what it is. If it's something that you really enjoy, and then suddenly you find yourself in a social situation where you're watching it or listening to it or whatever it is with other people there and they're sort of giving their assessment of it. It's quite awkward, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yes. Especially when you get somebody who's determined not to enjoy it and just... especially Somebody who really doesn't get it. Yeah. It's a thing I mentioned once before. If you find yourself watching the Adam West Batman series and then somebody starts picking holes into it as if it was dead serious, taking the parody at face value in the hopes of making themselves look funny. And I sort of get that impression that that's how Dennis would end up. I don't think that Dennis would come back on the train with Harry feeling as good as he does. I think that he'd be really sort of annoyed or potentially upset with Harry, constantly putting down what he likes. Speaking of music, I really hate the synth piano playing the theme tune. That horrible point in history. I was getting vibes of a throwback to the ever-decreasing circles music, but without full-on piano. Discordian piano, I was getting the impression that, yeah, there's sort of an element of that going on there. It's just the synthiness that gets me. And yet, you think that Trouble in Mind is the best sitcom theme ever written? <laughs> That's a contradiction, sure. No, no, the one in my head. <laughs> <laughs> Which, when we do Trouble in Mind, I will sing for you in full. I'm sure you're all looking forward to that. You have to actually write full-on lyrics for that, then. I've written the first verse. Go on, then. No, you have to wait. <laughs> Hang on a minute. I don't remember agreeing to do... I don't remember agreeing to do trouble on mind. We're going to do social class. We're going to do it in professional class. <laughs> oh, okay. Right, right. Gotcha. Yes. There's no actual evidence that I set the alarm to see trouble on mind on Granada Plus. just want to make that clear. Okay, now. Cards on the table. This is another Esmond and Larvie sitcom which is concluded after two series and we've spoken at length about where Mulberry should have gone 
in a FOD series. And the other one. Ho, ho, ho. Wait till you see the... You've not seen the other one, have you? I haven't. No, I haven't. Wait till you see it. It is definitely ending on a cliffhanger, and it's definitely ending with the setting up of a new format for Series 3. It's a very strange one because it appears to have three distinct phases, but Phase 2 actually starts halfway through Series 1. Okay. Or does it end like one episode from the end of Series 1? It's not like a nice, tidy thing where Series 1 is one phase and Series... No, it, it, you, you get a new set of opening titles partway through a series. Blimey. That's odd. And that theme tune. Back to Hope It Rains. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Okay, so had there been a first series of Hope It Rains, what would have happened? I can't tell you. There's that weird promise of change, but you don't really want to see Harry soften up. And bringing in new characters is usually a bad thing for a sitcom. Bringing in what they call the Cousin Olivers. <laughs> I'd prefer to think of them as the Cousin Alf. Is there a revelation we can think of for Harry that would change the way we see him without having to change his behaviour too much? We finally get to see what's in his bedroom. That changes everything. <laughs> well, for a start, it puts it post-watershed. If we've already had the revelations about Harry and Sybil, for example, you know, but Dennis's past, what about if Jace suddenly said something like she was married or something like that? And it hadn't worked out, but she was still married and suddenly himself turns up out of the blue or whatever it is. Something like that. Okay, here's a really bad one, which I suppose is, is kind of an echo of uh, something we talked about in... Uh... Ever decreasing circles. Jess begins to suspect that Harry's her father. Ah, yes, yes. But it turns out to be Dennis. Gotcha. <laughs> no, I mean. <laughs> How no, about Dennis is, gets a more flattering pair of glasses? <laughs> Those ones he's got just don't. I, th- I think it makes his hectoring worse. The, the thing is about Dennis, I was going to say one thing about Eamon Boland. The first time I saw him was in Singles, which was Eric Chappell and Gene War, I think. And that originally had Roger Rees before he went to the States to appear in Cheers, and then he was replaced with Simon Cadell. And Eamon Bowen's character in Singles was sort of relatively similar, sort of similar to the role he's playing in Hope It Rains. So because it, that was the main thing, Singles was the main thing I'd seen Eamon Bowen in previously, I sort of just had him down as that kind of character. He plays a character in one episode of Early Doors, the last episode. And there's not that many characters where, even if it's like an out-and-out heel, there's not that many characters I can think of where you just, oh, you just, you're just utterly repelled by them. But he is such an utter bastard in that episode. He's playing this sort of Flash character who is just absolutely obnoxious to everybody and he's constantly sort of putting it on and showing his money around and what have you. And yeah, he's just, he's a really, really nasty piece of work in that. And it's so against type because nothing like Dennis, nothing at all. And I'm really glad that he didn't play Dennis like that because that would have been horrible. What I'm basically saying is an actor who plays a role in something played a different role in something else. And I'm quite glad that they didn't get the two roles mixed up because it would have spoiled probably both shows. No, I can't think of a third series idea. The only thing I can think of to give the opening of a theoretical series three 
a little bit of a kick is we, we joined them after the wettest summer on record. And Harry and Dennis haven't quite switched places, but they have switched fortunes. Yes, yeah. One final point, by the way. Is it the case that every single show that we review in the course of this season of a sitcom club is going to include Sean Rapley? Oh, yes, I, I was about to mention that, yes. Hey, <laughs> well, if not, it should. That is actually a lovely little turn because it's such a sort of non sequitur, isn't it? He just turns up as a customer and says, uh, I've, I've left my umbrella in here. I'd like it back, please. Thank you very much. And is absolutely insistent upon this point. And says he's, he, he ran the entire previous day for his mind. He's got a photographic memory. And he knows for absolute certain that this is where he left his umbrella. And when Harry tells him a slingy hook, eventually he comes back later and says, no, sorry, I actually left it in Woolworths. I hope that these Maltesers will be suitable recompense. Yes. Yeah. Again, how many loose writing just how many problems in the world could be sorted by a bug Maltesers I mean honestly it just it should be something that's sort of like standard I think we've done with Hope It Rains I'm sure that as soon as we finish recording something will occur to us I enjoyed this I'm on the verge of calling it a lost classic it's just a little bit of extra development I could have done with at the end of series 2 to give it that jaw dropping feel but there's something here this is not available on dvd what the hell's going on not every single show that network are allowed to put out can be on dvd they can't put them out all at once i think they find they can (laughs) (laughs) they're working their way through things slowly hey marty feldman comedy machine it's coming to dvd that is good Uh, no that's me over here well, hey, yes. Coming to DVD, so maybe one day. Anyway, next week on the Sitcom Club, we are going to be nellying around with Lollipop Loves Mr. Mole, a.k.a. Lollipop. This is a series from ATV 1971 with Hugh Lloyd and Peggy Mount. Only two episodes of it survive, both from Series 2. They're available from Network DVD. And we will be discussing that next week. So in the meantime, on behalf of Ocho, this is Hey Home and Co saying thank you very much indeed for listening to the Sitcom Club. <laughs> <laughs>